Are you having trouble with temper tantrums? With little kids, meltdowns are really hard to avoid. So I came up with a method to help you remain calm, stop worrying about judginess, especially with public tantrums, and to know that you're not alone. To calmly, decisively handle every one of your child's temper tantrums. I want you to go to today's show notes, which you can find just by clicking the link in the <laughs> in the show notes. And over there, sign up for my guide. I, I created a free guide that I really think is going to be super helpful in alleviating your worries about temper tantrums. You know what? They are really hard to avoid. It's so true. And I think the best we can do is handle them well, understand what they're about, and understand that we are not alone and that every every kid, it's like a developmental thing. Kids have to have temper tantrums. And if you want some help dealing with them, then please, please, please go over to the show notes for today's episode and click the get here to get the guide button. And thank you very much. I think it will be super helpful. Come on, guys. We turned out okay. The Modern Parent's Guide to Old School Parenting. I want to hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out Okay with host Karen Locke Cole. I want to climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen Locke Cole. Welcome to episode 160. And before I get into the main content of today's Just You and Me episode, I wanted to have a note from our sponsor. So if you are seeing aggressive behavior or sadness or passivity in your child, or if your child is exhibiting some bad behavior, whether at home or at school or in childcare or at camp, and it's worrying you, then come and get some help in the Ninja Parenting community. It's where I help parents just like you handle all the tough stuff that our kids throw at us. We've got parent coaching calls to work through your problems and help you stay on track. We've got training courses and stuff like how to stay sane while simultaneously raising children. We've got hacks and ideas to try through the Parents Timeout video series, which often for members are out weeks early. And this is something new that I really wanted to, wanted to talk about. I've been, for the last month or two, I've been developing, based on podcast episodes, little quick, super quick parents timeout videos that I've been putting in YouTube. And each one gives a quick little tip. And they always come out when the, like usually the Thursday of the, of the corresponding podcast episode. When that comes out, so does this come out. And but parents in the ninja parenting community see those sometimes weeks early because of the way that I create them. I batch them and then I have them unlisted in YouTube and they don't go public until the week of the podcast. So so that's something else that I'm offering that I know members are really getting a benefit from right now. And I've also got, we've also got awesome forums with lots of support for you. To check it out, click the link in the show notes or go to weturnedoutok.com slash 160 and I will see you in the community. 
Thank you very much for listening to that note from our sponsor. And now getting into today's Your Child Explained episode, which is what to do when your child is fighting. It's part of the open-ended play series. In fact, it's the third and final part in the series. And I, I guess we'll get into why I think that fighting, a potential solution for fighting is open-ended play. I'm still thinking about uh, Miriam Beliglovsky and Lisa Daly's amazing interview that I conducted with them probably a month before it went live, and it now has gone live like a month ago. So, I mean, I can tell you that show is just blowing my mind. Like the things that these two early childhood education professors shared about about what they're seeing now in their college classes, the the kind of condition that kids come to them in, young adults come to them in, blew my mind. And I, I earlier on in this series, I really did kind of a kind of a rant. And I won't do that again to you, I promise. One one rant per series. But if you haven't listened to the very first, well, if you haven't listened to episode 152 with Miriam and Lisa, definitely do that. And I will link to it. And I'm also going to link to the previous episodes in this series, which I believe the first one was episode 154. And then the next one was episode 157. And here we are at 160. And in the first one, I talk a lot about some of the things that Miriam and Lisa describe that their students are doing. They, sh- they come to them completely passive. Uh, Lisa actually describes them as almost frozen, waiting for instructions without any spark of like creativity or inquiry or curiosity at all. And it's because, and this is not just through Lisa and Miriam's observations, but and lots of other people's observations, but, but it's because of the fact that these kids didn't get the opportunity to play as children. They did not have open-ended play as children. They describe a student that they know who, or, I'm, you know, I say that, a student uh, that, I think it was a student that they know. Anyway, they describe a student who got a perfect score on his math SATs, but yet couldn't operate a screwdriver because he spent so much time preparing for his SATs that he never he never encountered a screwdriver or any kind of concrete physical thing in his childhood and they describe physics physics teachers high school physics teachers who are frustrated because they're trying to teach the concepts behind our physical world they're trying to teach velocity and trajectory and force and mass and gravity and they they are encountering kids high school students without any physical relationship to those forces. And you have to experience it before you can understand it. And uh, I mean, imagine not not understanding something like gravity, because you've never <laughs> fallen while playing or dropped something in your play to just to see what would happen. That's what little kids do all the time. And that's why open-ended play is so important. And I, I'm happy today because the ranty voice isn't what I'm hearing in myself today. I'm hearing more of a like, more rational kind of, I'm sorry, you guys, that was, uh, you know, that was, I had, I feel like I had bottled that up. So it had been probably a month since I had heard the interview. And, and a lot of, I had a lot of my interview with Lisa and Miriam really sparked a bunch of stuff for me. And uh, 
like I've written essays on this now. I've applied to speak at conferences on this now because I think it's just, it's probably the one, the one thing that, that is in our power to do is to get kids more open-ended play. And like, we, we can't tell it what the outcome is going to be. You know, we, we can't, we can't guarantee a successful, fulfilled life for them, but even so, even if they have a, a tremendously unhappy and unfulfilled adulthood, to deprive them of play in childhood is going to guarantee an unhappy and unfulfilled adulthood. Because if you, the, as these people are growing up and discovering, if you if you didn't play as a child, you don't you you lack the kind of curiosity and playfulness that that even the most stodgy adults have somewhere, you know, uh, if they played as children. And anyway, okay, so that's all I'm going to say about that rant over, <laughs> rant part two over. When I was a child development student as an undergrad, one of the first things that we were taught was how the organization of a classroom can have a huge influence on the behavior of the children. And I was thinking about this also during my conversation with Lisa and Miriam. Uh, one of the things that Lisa said was, when they don't have anything to do, of course they're going to get in trouble. What do you expect with them to do on an asphalt playground where they can only ride a bicycle around the loop two times and then they have to get off and give it to someone else? And I think the 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 consensus there is that they get off that bike and there's nothing else for them to do. They're, they're standing on asphalt with other kids and... They're, or they're waiting for their turn at the slide, or they are, they're just standing and waiting. And again, it's, it's all about passive. I think the word passive came up several times in that conversation. Because what we do when we restrict kids to these are the these are the hard and fast, extremely rigid rules, you got two times on this bike, and then you have to get off, they wait for the bike. And then and they wait and they wait. I mean, I'm sure to, to kids, like if two other kids have to do the loop, that's going to be so frustrating for them. And then they only have their two times all around the loop and then they have to get off too. And it just, it creates problems. And it's a, it's an organization thing that, that is, is really the basis to those problems. So like if we have kids fighting over the bike and there's only one bike and there's nothing else to do, that is an organizational problem. It's not a kid problem. And so that we learned, you know, as a human development, as a child development student, I learned to mitigate that. Like, how do you, how do you mitigate that? And one thing that you can do is you can look at the child's environment. In in your case, probably their bedroom or the or their play area, whatever that, however that's set up, or their outdoor area, where where you can go to play outside. And if it is, pardon me, if it's if it's super organized, too organized. Uh, if there isn't enough for the kids to do, if there aren't enough sort of, if, if all, if what they've got is a, a, one of those activity tables or like a super saucer that the kids go in and, you know, they push the buttons and they spin the things. And then they're like, all right, I'm, my, God, my oldest used to be so, he was done with that. We didn't even have one of those for our second son, um, at least not here. I think it went to grandma's. But we didn't, we never used it because our oldest was kind of like, yeah, all right, I've been in this thing for five minutes and I'm not loving it. I can't do anything different than I was doing a minute ago. Uh, 
if we have only like one horse, what do you call that? No, not one horse. Is it a one horse show? Is that what it's called? I can't remember. Anyway, if we have toys for them that only do one thing, you push a button, it makes a noise, it lights up, whatever, then then kids are going to get bored with that really fast. And that's an organizational thing. They, they're going to get bored and start to get in trouble. They're going to start doing things that maybe you don't want them to do. And not you in an accusatory fashion, because I had to learn this too. You know, we all, we all have to come at this in our own ways. But if you're seeing some sibling fighting, if you're seeing some excessive arguing at home and you're not happy with that, perhaps it's because of the environment. And so my question for you is, can you anticipate those arguments? And I guess I have a couple of questions. Can you anticipate them? I mean, the answer to that is totally yes. And what can you do about them? Can Can you pull out like a table, an activity table that has, that's completely covered in buttons and, and there's no other way to use the table, in other words, than to press those buttons. Now, my youngest did find other ways to use that. His favorite thing when he was learning to walk was to climb up onto that table and sit on it. And he would feel very proud of himself when he was up there. So, but maybe if if space is limited, take that thing out and in its place, put in a box of plastic Tupperware, you know, or some other what are called loose parts that they don't have to be expensive. You know, they, they, they can be found objects, put in a bunch of scarves, or um, things that things that can be used in more than one way. Uh, it doesn't again, it just does, it doesn't have to be expensive or whatever. And if you can have, if you've got two kids, and you can have two scarves, that's awesome. Um, or maybe have many scarves of different colors, if you can do that. Uh, things that kids can use in many different ways and that just draw their curiosity and their interest. And what we find, and I know this from more than Miriam and Lisa, I know this from, and I know this from more than my own experience, uh, speaking to Tanya Trainer several episodes ago, I think she was episode 38. I will do my best to link to her as well. Uh, Tanya Trainer did this really cool thing. She's a nursing school, nursery school owner. I'm just going to write Tanya T right up there so that I remember that. Okay. She's a nursery school owner and they had the they had the problem of having to replace outdoor play equipment like their slides and their slide and their swings and those kinds of things were going to require the the regulations were changing for uh, outdoor equipment and they needed like more space around them than than that was currently available and they couldn't move to a different space. So what they did was they decided to pull out the traditional playground equipment and replace it with loose parts. So the kids in Miss Tanya's nursery school now in three different locations were able to, and, and plus the kids had input in this, the kids were able to choose their environment. So in the one that I saw, in fact, in the one that I sat in and, and interviewed Miss Tanya in, and we actually got to watch kids playing in it as well, there were things like PVC tubes with water nearby, with like a spigot nearby. Definitely an outdoor thing. Don't do water inside your house unless you want to flood. Uh, bricks, sticks, things like rocks, I mean, uh, pebbles, things that 
maybe not pebbles that are small enough to to you know that anything that fits into a toilet paper tube is is out because um kids could choke on it right so make sure that any pebbles are bigger than that um and the the changes that they saw in the in the way that the kids behaved so now that they're no longer waiting at the bottom of the slide until it's their turn to slide and now that there's no there aren't the same kind of restrictions on them for following these very specific rules and and stuff that what Miss Tanya and her fellow teachers saw was that the kids' behavior improved dramatically. And there was tons of collaboration on the playground. And so much so that they, they brought loose parts inside as well. Um, and so you get kids really playing together, interacting a lot more social interaction. And in fact, Lisa and Miriam describe a boy, I think his name was Arnie, who was into throwing things. He's a young preschool or, or late toddler kind of age. And his big thing was to throw stuff. And so he would pick up heavy things, he would pick up whatever he could find, he could throw, he would throw them. And they looked on that as an organizational thing. And what they did about it was they found stuff that Arnie could throw, and they put it in a location that he might want to throw it from. So up in their loft, they've got a, they now have a, a, a basket of yarn balls and other light things that Arnie could throw and other kids, of course, too, and see how they see what happens with them. And one of my favorite parts of that story that Lisa and Miriam tell is there was a new girl starting who I believe wasn't an English speaker at the time. And she was feeling very shy and uncomfortable. And she sees Arnie throwing, throwing these yarn balls, and she makes her arms into a basketball hoop. And now the two children are smiling at each other and collaborating and playing together. And that is really how to stop fighting. I mean, that's one really great way to stop fighting is to think about it as an organizational task. Like, how can we change the environment so that we have kids who aren't uh, fighting, you know, who instead are, are doing something else? Uh, like collaborating, or or at least they're engaged in a, in a way that's not just waiting, you know. Uh, I guess another another thing I wanted to get into in this show is when we ask, can we anticipate potential arguments? I just want to see how long I've been talking. Okay, good. I haven't been talking for too too long yet. I don't like to overburden you guys with long long just you and me episodes, I want you to be able to take these and run with them. So, but another question that I think is a really important one to ask is, can we ask kids for solutions? And I love Miriam talks about this idea of like, what do you need? Asking a child, what do you need? And she tells a story of a boy who couldn't swing because all the swings were taken up. And a teacher said to him, what do you need? And he thought, okay, if I want to swing, and what he said was, I need a rope. So they find him a rope, and he figures out where to string it and how to put it up. And then he says, and then they say, okay, what else do you need? Because he's still not swinging, right? And and he says, I need, I think he said, I need something to sit on. So they find, they help him find something to sit on. And, and, and eventually he has a swing. He's made himself a swing. He's solved a huge problem for himself. And so asking kids for solutions I can see this working in so we, you know what, it's a great skill because when they're, when they're later on in their later development, when they're tweens and teens and even young adults, if they are used to the question, what do you need? They will start asking it of themselves. And I mean, I'm totally seeing this in my kids' lives. Uh, You know, my oldest desperately wants his driver's license 
and he's got his permit, but it's not enough because he he wants he wants to alleviate my needing to drive him places because a lot of the things he wants to do or the people that he wants to spend time with are, you know, a longish drive away. And so in order to make that happen, he needs money. And he spent the winter, I'm so proud of him, he spent the winter really digging in and looking for a job. And he now has a job. He's successfully, gainfully employed. And even that within its own, now he's 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 getting to do driver's ed, he's making himself some money. But even the job itself has its challenges. And for him to be able to say, what do I need is a really, really important skill. For example, his first week on the job, they put him, they gave him roughly twice the hours that he asked for. And it turned out it was an emergency. They needed, they needed, um, other people on this shift because they'd had to suspend somebody. And so he went in that first day of this long, long, long week. And he said, listen, you can put me for these hours, but I need fewer hours to be a good employee. I need fewer hours. And so he was basically saying to himself, what do I need to make this successful? And realizing what it was, and then being able to communicate that to his uh, you know, to his manager or whatever, that's really big, important stuff. And I know it's really hard for you to see now the impact that this kind of question will have on your on your young child as they get older. But believe me, it goes so much faster than you could imagine. It seems like yesterday when Max was small and trying to figure out what he needed. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it was a snap of my fingers ago. So not only will this help now, but it will definitely, definitely help them down the road. Um, Miriam says, when she's talking about the the building your own swing, um, you know, asking this boy, what do you need? And then another question that they ask him is, what else do you need? Because once he's got the rope, now he's like, okay, what else do I need here? Miriam says, So that begins to show you that they do know what they want. They are also very capable of finding solutions to solve their needs. And it's up to us adults to take the time to question and ask them, what else do you need? So when they're fighting, whether at home with a sibling or with you or out in the world or in school, I mean, who knows when when it will come upon them to, to... behave badly because they are frustrated or or get into a, a fight or an argument because they're frustrated. What what remembering that we can ask them for ideas or solutions is really important and we want to do that before they're thinking aggressively. Like before they get to that frustrated point. I think we there's a there's some timing here cuz you want to wait. It it wouldn't have done any good for me you know, two years ago to say to Max, hey, listen, eventually you're going to want some money so that you can get your driver's license. It, it had to happen organically for him. And, but getting to the point where it was happening organically, and then to be able to say, what do you need? That, that is the timing issue that I'm talking about. So unless you are, unless or until there's two friends and one cookie, it's going to be really difficult to say, okay, how will we find a solution to the two friends, one cookie problem? And so before they're, but before they're thinking aggressively, so before one kid yanks that cookie up off the plate and gobbles it up. And so to ask them like, okay, there's only one cookie for both of you. What, what can you do? What, what do you need? And to help them understand that each kid 
you know, to, that sharing feels really good, that, that, that everybody having some of the cookie feels really good. And then saying, what do you need? Or what else do you need? The kids might come up with a solution that we would never believe. Like, like, I once had one of my kids confronted in that situation say, well, what if we also have some strawberries with the cookie? And, you know, I can also imagine a kid saying like, what if we have a big drink? Like, do you have any milk? <laughs> let's let's make it more than just about the cookie. And whereas I feel like my only solution would have been to cut the cookie in half and say to the kids, okay, you know, knock yourself out. It's also possible that, that generous kid might say like, hey, I don't, I don't really, this isn't my favorite kind of cookie. You go ahead and have the cookie, but those strawberries sounded pretty good. I mean, I, I kind of doubt it, right? <laughs> but in a, in a, in a world of many, 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 many unique individuals, somebody might say that. So, and the thing, I guess my point is that they're always going to surprise you with, with their ideas. And we won't know those ideas to be surprised unless or until we ask. So that's really why it's our job to say like, what do you need? And then to extend on that and say, what else do you need? And I think the the third thing I really want to say about helping about open-ended play helping with fighting in general or with alleviating frustration and anger is uh, Miriam, again, in episode 152, Miriam brings up an idea that she says was first introduced early on by Jean Piaget, who like Jean Piaget is one of my heroes. He's just, he's one of the first people to really observe and he was observing his own children but he's one of the first people to really observe and kind of construct ideas about kids' development and, and why do they do what they do. So, I mean, if you think of him in a playful way, asking, like, why does my son do that kind of a thing? And then, I mean, his work has gone on to be um, upheld. And I don't mean upheld in a, like, reverent way, although, of course, it is. But what I mean is more it's been proven again and again and again that this is the stages that, that Piaget kind of came up with I mean we still it is so those stages are are like so true and clear it's it's really wonderful anyway so early on Jean Piaget Miriam talks about he introduced an idea that through discourse through arguments that's where children enter the learning space so in other words that was Miriam's quote through discourse through arguments is where children enter that learning space when kids encounter a setback or get into a conflict with somebody else, there's a ton of learning there. And we parents, understandably, we want no conflict. I get it. We want everything to be smooth for our kids. Because that, I mean, partly because that makes it smoother for us. But also, I think it's become, and I think this is really a mistaken idea. And it's been talked about a lot on the podcast, like Jessica Leahy, for example, who wrote the book, The Gift of Failure, and came on my show to talk about that. Yes, I'll get my pencil out right now and write Jessica Leahy. Um, this idea that smoothing things out for our kids, I feel like it's become kind of a, it's, it's to do anything else is is looked on as you're not a good enough parent. You're not doing enough for your child. And I, I really loved how Jessica Leahy kind of put it in in The Gift of Failure and also like in our conversation that when we, I'm not quoting her, I can't remember her exact quote, but when we do that, when we when we take away the 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 discourse and the arguments that kids have, 
we are taking away, we're damaging them and we're robbing them of opportunities for friends, for learning, for, for inspiring their own creativity, for coming up with their own solutions and solving their own problems. And I mean, that is, that's what I really want to leave you with today. That is such a huge, important mission of childhood is to, to have that discourse, to have those arguments and disagreements and and not just stand up for yourself, but uh, although I think that's a part of it, but to to come up with solutions, cooperative solutions that that where where you're working together with other people. And I just I really just want you to kind of leave today's episode with the question for yourself: What can I do to inspire that kind of discourse and arguments and? Uh, not just arguments, but the, the discourse for children among themselves and even in my interactions with my child. And, and I think so your answer is going to be some version of, of asking them the question, what do you need? And then letting them sit back and think about it and, and of making, making their environment more attuned to inspiring open-ended play because really it's through the open-ended play that that these other critical critical things happening it's through the open-ended play that they can happen at all and when we when we are now seeing young adults who who have no interface with the physical world and with really limited social skills and problem-solving skills and who 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 are medicated and depressed in such vast numbers. And I mean, this is demonstrated again and again. Uh, contact me if you would like some more evidence about this, because actually, I, I, I to be honest, this is going to be my next book. I mean, I'm working on a book about this. And uh, because I want you to have this information at your fingertips when you need it. And um, I mean, the podcast is definitely part of that, but to have something concrete, like a book that you can refer to again and again, I think that's so valuable. And um, (laughs) so anyway, (laughs) there's a tangent for you. Uh, Yeah, please, please, please try to get open-ended play into your child's life. Try to organize their environment so that open-ended play is more of a thing than not open-ended play. And, And remember that even when you are struggling because you're you're allowing your child to get into an argument and work something out with their sibling or with a friend you are doing them a vast service and they need they need that so all right that's it for today thanks so much for listening it it means so much to me i say this every time and that's because it's still true that that to have you here and listening is a joy and a continual source of gratitude for me. Um, the only thing that would make it more joyful is, and more of a source of gratitude for me is if you shout about it either to friends or you leave us a review or you get in touch with me just to say thank you so much uh, or to ask questions. I mean, those are those are wonderful too when I get when I get questions from you. And I really really appreciate all of your all of your uh, commitment to. We turned out okay through listening and through reaching out and through sharing. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And finally, I have a special thanks to our producer, the 19-time winner, soon-to-be 20-time winner of the Husband of the Year Award, Benjamin Culp. Thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time.
for listening to We Turned Out Okay. I want a date to Australia. Find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com, where you'll find show notes and more. What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese. And remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. I want to pee in the woods. Derp, 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 derp,